Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monash Rath. I am Monash Rath here at Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and uh, we are producing today perhaps the 76th episode, somewhere around there, of the OSHA 3030. This is a program that we do every 30 days in about 30 minutes, and we try and cover the most uh, developmental impacts on OSHA law or occupational safety and health law that have happened in the recent past. And, and we've been doing this for almost six and a half years. We're in our seventh year. And uh, a lot, um, as I said before, I'm Manish Rath, and I'm a partner here at Keller and Heckman uh, in our OSHA law practice and litigation practice here in our Washington, D.C. office. I'm joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Manish. Uh, well, we're grateful. And uh, Javane, as you know, this is a program we've, we're in our seventh year for, and we've libraried all of our prior OSHA 3030 episodes on our website, which is khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And uh, there's a lot of really great information there. People can uh, pick through those, find topics that they think are, are relevant or helpful for them and just walk through them. And what you'll find is they're self-executing files where you'll get the audio and the slides just moving through. And it's a real quick 30-minute uh, way to catch up on a lot of the developments in OSHA law over the past six and a half years. Uh, in addition, many of you know that we reprise the past few years and th this program as well as a podcast. So even if you can't get to your desk uh, now or even later, you can listen to the OSHA 3030 as a podcast while you're on the go. And uh, so you can get that on your favorite podcasting uh, uh, app like iTunes and, and SoundCloud, I think, is another one. Uh, so, so look for it and just uh, search on OSHA 3030 uh, on your favorite podcast uh, station. Uh, and, and when you do, please, in order to make it more searchable and more findable for others, if you've listened to one uh, at the end, please like or rate the OSHA 3030 as a podcast so that it stays uh, available in that particular uh, podcast channel. Uh, with that said, Javane, as you know, we have a great topic today, a uh, really critical circuit court decision. Uh, and I think in the world of OSHA law, uh, these issues don't come up to the U.S. Courts of Appeals very often. And when they do, I think that they have the potential to be landmark decisions. And I think that's the case here. Uh, so what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the facts in this particular case, going all the way back to the the event that led to self-reporting and the subsequent OSHA inspection. Uh, we'll provide, in order to make sure everyone's caught up and on the same page, a brief overview or background on the basics of OSHA inspections and the ability for OSHA to obtain a warrant, why they would obtain warrants and when, and the lower court decision. Uh, that examined the sufficiency of the evidence uh, that OSHA presented in defense of its uh, seeking a warrant. And then when it went up to the U.S. Court of Appeals, what the U.S. Court of Appeals said. Uh, finally, as we always do, we will end with a practical discussion of takeaway items for what employers should do in light of this new development. So with that said, let's get started with the facts of this case. 
Great. So in this case, uh, Marjack Poultry, which is a poultry processing facility in Gainesville, Georgia, they had an employee back in 2016 who was injured while working. Uh, the employee was attempting to repair an electrical panel using a non-insulated screwdriver. So unfortunately, an arc flash resulted in severe burns to the employee's hands and face, and that required the employee to be sent to the hospital. So under OSHA's injury uh, reporting regulations, the employer must report to OSHA about any inpatient hospitalization of an employee that was a result of a work-related incident. So Marjack promptly reported the hospitalization to OSHA pursuant to the regulations. And Javanese, as you know, we've covered uh, that as an entirely separate OSHA 3030, this idea of self-reporting in specific events such as fatalities, uh, hospitalization, uh, and, and amputations and eye injuries. And I think that's an important OSHA 3030. If those of you who aren't familiar with the circumstances under which an employer has to self-report to OSHA, uh, go find that OSHA 3030 episode, check it out, because I think that that's a, a great background piece of information that helps understand the Marjack decision a little bit better. Absolutely. It's really important to understand your reporting requirements. So Marjack uh, Marjack, pursuant to the regulations, promptly reported the hospitalization, and in response, OSHA sent an inspection team to the facility to make an unprogrammed inspection. So Marjack consented to an inspection uh, of the electrical accident site and the tools involved, but did not allow OSHA to inspect any additional areas. So they gave them permission to have a limited inspection. So right. while- what happened, uh, Jovan, as you know, the the employer, Marjack, self-reported this injury when their employee went to the hospital after the arc flash injury. And then that Monday, OSHA showed up with a host of inspectors. Well, they brought, uh, I believe, the area director and inspector and I think two others that they claimed were uh, specialists in specific areas. And in the opening conference, that's when Marjack said, you can mm-hmm. you can inspect based on this accident, but we won't allow you to expand this to a wall-to-wall inspection. Interestingly, OSHA had already made the determination the prior business day upon receipt of that self-report uh, by Marjack that we're going to expand this to a wall-to-wall inspection. So then the, when right. they show up on the very first day of inspection, they'd already made it determination right. that they were going to do this as a wall-to-wall. That's right, but Marjack did not consent to that. And so when doing the limited inspection, OSHA found potential violations of a few different standards, including the electrical OSHA's electrical safety standard, uh, PPE standard, uh, machine guarding, and the lockout-tagout standard. Uh, OSHA also reviewed an evaluation from an outside consultant, which was... Uh, uh, evaluating and, and quite critical of the company's lack of an appropriate program to abate electrical so- shock risks. And also OSHA requested um, Marjack's OSHA 300 logs. Uh, and so OSHA wanted to expand the scope of the ex- inspection of the facility and sought a warrant to conduct an inspection of the entirely uh, of the entire facility. And this was based on of the Poultry Regional Emphasis Program, or the Poultry REP. And this REP provides neutral criterion, uh, which could lead to a a randomly generated programmed inspection of a particular facility. So the REP identifies 16 categories of hazards that are particularly concerning to poultry processing facilities in Georgia and several neighboring states. And so uh, based on those lists of hazards, OSHA OSHA sought a warrant to expand the scope of its inspection. 
Yeah, and that's right. And as part of their limited inspection, they one of the first things they always ask for and that they asked for in this case was also the injury and illness mm-hmm. records. And uh, when they looked through the injury and illness records that Marjack supplied, they believed that they saw evidence of potential hazards associated with a whole bunch of other issues mm-hmm. like ergonomics, record-keeping, uh, biological hazards. Chemical hazards, slips, trips, and falls. Slips, trips, and falls are um, uh, really prevalent in meat processing and in particularly poultry because the product that they're dealing with ends up on the cutting floors and it creates a, quite a slippery uh, sur- floor surface. Uh, and so, so I don't think that there was anything exceptional necessarily that OSHA alleged in Marjack's data involving these kinds of hazards. But when they saw the uh, events or data listed on the OSHA 30, on the OSHA 300, I was about to say the OSHA 3030. <laughs> Close. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they, they alleged that this was, should provide evidence that there are other hazards beyond simply the ones associated with the arc flash related injury. This is interesting because the, the regional emphasis program that you described, Javane, together with the data on the OSHA 3030, on the OSHA 300 log, uh, I'm going to keep doing that yeah. this program, aren't I? <laughs> Uh, they they wanted to use that as a justification for why they had already made the determination to ex- try and expand this to a wall-to-wall inspection. Uh, but I think uh, it's important to deal with each issue at a time because OSHA had made its determination to expand to a wall-to-wall inspection before their first day of inspection and thus could have only been premised on the regional emphasis program, which itself in turn was premised upon OSHA's allegation that the poultry industry had an unusually high uh, rate of incidences uh, or injuries and illnesses um, vis-a-vis the general industry with regard to specific issues. And uh, even that, by the way, is a premise that Marjack contested, noting that, that if you looked at the 2014 data, the injury and illness rate was something like 3.4 per 100 uh, full-time employees, whereas if you looked at a different industry that you would think of as being, I'm sorry, 4.3 uh, injury and illnesses per uh, 100 full-time employees per year, Whereas you look at a comparative industry that you would have thought of as relatively safe, like local government workers, their rate was 5.0 injuries or illnesses per 100 full-time employees per year. And so Marjack even contested the basis for why there should be a regional emphasis program or emphasis program of any kind for the poultry industry at all. And much less so to use that regional emphasis program as the basis for expanding Marjack's specific inspection into a wall-to-wall inspection. I think they have a fair point that's, that's reasonably argued. So, so where does that leave us? Well, we talked about the, the basic facts in the case. Let's talk about the inspection a little bit. Uh, to provide some background on OSHA inspections, OSHA may obtain a warrant to infe- uh, inspect a facility of an, uh, if an employer refuses to allow OSHA to inspect um, or they only consent to a very limited inspection and they want to expand that. So, and so, uh, but in order to obtain a warrant, OSHA has to show probable cause to get an inspection warrant from a judge. And probable cause for an inspection warrant may consist of either uh, showing specific evidence of an existing violation 
or showing that reasonable legislative or administrative standards for conducting an an inspection are satisfied with respect to the particular establishment. And ultimately, reasonableness remains the uh, standard in evaluating the propriety of an administrative search. So the evidence must at least show that the proposed inspection is based on a reasonable belief that a violation has been or is being committed. That's right. And let me... um let me go backwards and point out that you always need, if you're an inspecting entity, OSHA will always need probable cause to conduct an inspection. It's merely that if they go to a court and get a warrant, they need to persuade the court that a warrant is necessary based on the presentation of probable cause. And if they have sufficiently presented evidence of probable cause, the court will issue them a warrant. And the warrant stands as a proxy for having to argue later on that they had probable cause to do uh, to conduct an inspe- inspection. And so they're going through that formality in order to argue probable cause ahead of time. And that is the value mm-hmm. of a warrant in theory. Right. Uh, in practice, courts, once you go to a court you will see a large spectrum of responses based on a given set of evidence as to whether it's sufficient uh, to be tantamount to uh, probable cause. And some judges, there are some judges out there that there's a perception that they will uh, be less scrutinous about evidence and give more faith and credit to an enforcement agency when that agency is seeking a warrant. And uh, that may be a perception uh, that's that's debatable, but certainly there is a perception out there shared by a large number of people that some judges will be not much more than a rubber stamp for an agency application for that warrant. And and it's important to try to uh, to compel a court to test the sufficiency, to scrupulously test the sufficiency of the evidence that the agency is supplying. And that's the essence of what this case comes down to. Right. Uh, at, at the When the magistrate judge was evaluating the, uh, the application for a warrant, they did have to have a hearing and weigh all of this evidence to determine if there was probable cause. And so that is part of the evaluation that they have to make sure these thresholds are met before they actually issue the warrant. So there's really two ways that a, an agency can get a warrant. And one is with the showing of probable cause based on specific evidence that there's reasonable basis to believe that a violation is likely or probable. The other is that the agency can show that there's this neutral administrative scheme, a neutral legislative or administrative scheme that's not targeted at anyone based on evidence that shows probable cause of the likelihood of a violation. It's just neutrally applied. The scheme on its face is neutrally drafted, and then when applied in real life, it's neutrally applied. And that's the other way that an employ- that an agency can show that this inspection isn't arbitrary, it's not capricious, it's not prejudicial. Uh, it's not being, uh, their enforcement powers are not being applied uh, with an abuse of power, and it's not being applied through biases. And because the, the, the administrative plan or scheme is, is essentially neutral on its face and neutrally applied. And so that's the other way. And, and OSHA here argues that the administrative scheme that it's applying is the regional emphasis program that you, Javanay, were just talking about. And they're saying, well, that, that's a 
regional emphasis program that we set out to apply to the uh, poultry industry. In this particular case, there's several regional administrative plans. This one in particular was about poultry. And we just believe that the injury and illness rate for that industry is high enough that if we ever get any complaints relating to that industry, that we can apply the regional emphasis program. And basically what that says is we can apply it in order to convert a complaint-based inspection into a wall-to-wall inspection because of the nature of that industry being one that has a higher incidence of injuries and illnesses generally. And that was the argument they made to the court. Right. And so they they argue that, look, we applied neutral criteria in this case. We we looked at the regional emphasis program. There are 16 different hazards that are typical for this industry. And so that that is enough for us to be able to expand our our, war, our inspection. And then they made a second argument that you know, we also have that other criteria, which is that reasonable uh, likelihood of a violation based on evidence. And mm-hmm. what they did with that is they looked at their limited inspection and looked at what they gathered. And again, they looked at the data on the OSHA Form 300 mm-hmm. and said that also is a reasonable, uh, probable cause basis for expanding to wall-to-wall. So we have both types right. of bases for expanding this to wall-to-wall. And that was OSHA's argument. Uh, so where does that leave us? That's the inspection. And uh, that's the basis on which they tried to get a warrant. When they sought that warrant, Marjack went to court and filed an emergency motion to quash. Yeah, Marjack, uh, they filed an emergency motion to quash, and uh, following that, uh, the court conducted a hearing, and the magistrate judge ultimately issued a report and recommendation to the district court recommending that Marjack's motion to quash be granted. So the district judge um, adopted the magistrate judge's report and recommendation and quashed the inspection warrant. And this is because the court found that, as the as the magistrate judge also did, that OSHA did demonstrate probable cause for the hazards that they observed, which is the electrical hazards, PPE, machine guarding, as well as some record-keeping violations. However, OSHA lacked reasonable suspicion for the other five violations that they asserted were um, supported by the OSHA 300 logs, as well as the remaining hazards identified by the poultry REP. Uh, they also found that Marjack was not selected for the inspection pursuant to neutral criteria. So overall, uh, the the court came back to OSHA and said that OSHA, you uh, uh, they could submit a new warrant application with a uh, reduced scope. However, instead, OSHA chose to forego the inspection and instead appealed the district court's decision to the 11th Circuit. Right. So OSHA brought this to the 11th Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. And uh, OSHA argued, essentially through through its uh, Department of Justice attorneys, uh, the, the U.S. attorney, that, that the district court had failed to uh, examine OSHA's arguments fairly and they improperly quashed the warrant application. And... And they said, basically, look, here's the error the district court made. They, they applied a more stringent standard to uh, whether or not probable cause exists. Uh, what they did was they looked at and required evidence that a specific violation was possible. And what they should have done was looked merely at reasonable suspicion that a violation might be occurring or might have occurred. And 
they OSHA also argued that the district court misunderstood the terms uh, hazard and violation as OSHA had intended the the terms to be used, and uh, they therefore asked that the Eleventh Circuit reverse the district court's decision. They they pointed to the evidence that they had brought forward of the other five hazards that were supported by the OSHA 300 log and uh, said, look, the OSHA 300 logs showed that a hazard existed. And that that itself is probable cause of a violation. The 11th Circuit rejected those arguments. Let's go through them one by one. That's right. So first of all, the 11th Circuit, they affirmed the district court's order uh, quashing the inspection warrant because uh, generally the uh, the decision of the magistrate judge, the lower court, uh, determining uh, their determination about probable cause, that's typically granted great deference by reviewing courts because at, at the lower court level, they actually had the evidentiary hearing. They heard all of the um, all of the arguments from both parties and looked at the evidence and they made this decision. And so the 11th Circuit, you know, absent um, absent an abuse of discretion or uh, something extreme, they will uphold the uh, magistrate's determination on probable cause. That's right. And then when they get into the exact reasons why they they were upholding the district court's decision, they really parsed this out well. They took things one step at a time, and they first said, well, we, we need to look at uh, the difference between the probability of a violation or what OSHA needs to prove to prove a violation for a standard versus the general duty clause. They said mm-hmm. we need to first look at the evidence that was premised on data gathered from the OSHA Form 300 versus data versus the mere argument that they were applying a regional emphasis program, and they take each one of those at a time, and uh, they look at the uh, injury and illness data that's supported in the Form 300, and they also cited in a footnote Marjack's argument about uh, the the regional emphasis program for the poultry industry generally, and the data supporting the need for that regional emphasis program in the first place. So I think they did a good job of taking things one step at a time rather than conflating or right. allowing OSHA to conflate all of these issues. Right, and I think the most uh, the biggest takeaway from the opinion is that uh, the the presence of or the indication of a hazard on an OSHA 300 log, in and of itself is not enough to show probable cause for um, expanding an inspection or probable cause that there is a violation. And the court tried to make a a clear distinction between what is a uh, hazard and what is a violation. And as you mentioned, Manish, uh, under the general duty clause and under OSHA standards, uh, you have to demonstrate more than just the presence of a hazard to show a violation. Under the general duty clause, for example, you have to show that uh, the hazard was recognized, that the hazard caused or was likely to cause death or serious physical harm, that the hazard was preventable. So there are elements that you still need to show beyond just there's a hazard that exists in the OSHA 300 log. Yeah, and I'm not really sure that. that the OSHA 300 log even shows that, although the court believed that at least it shows the possible uh, presence of a hazard. I'm not sure it shows even that. And this is an important point. Uh, when you look at the OSHA Form 300, and we'll put that up for you to take a look at, there's no opportunity for the employer, and there's no requirement for the employer to identify causation or suspected causation. Uh, indeed, it's on the face of the statute as well as in the regula- interpretive regulation of Section 1904 that this is a no-fault uh, process where regardless of causation and regardless of fault, if there is a qualifying injury or illness, 
then the employer should enter that data into the Form 300. So you will have data entry in the Form 300 that may have had causes, which we would know, may have had causes that had nothing to do with a, the presence of a hazard, may have nothing to do with uh, employer fault or mm-hmm. by any act or omission. Uh, and nevertheless, there it is on the Form 300. And so we just don't know whether or not, uh, by the mere data that's on the 300, whether or not uh, there's any hazard, much less any violation. It doesn't, and the court noted this, the 11th Circuit noted that uh, they just disagree with OSHA and they, they opined that the data on the Form 300 is not evidence towards uh, the question of probable cause that a violation may have existed. I will acknowledge the possibility that a later court may address a different question, which is whether a superabundance of repeated similar data on a Form 300 may indicate uh, probable cause that a violation may be occurring uh, or even that a hazard might be present. But we are not faced with that. And in fact, the court did address OSHA's arguments to that point that they they said that there are similar, uh, multiple similar entries in the Form 300 at Marjack that should have been looked at as sufficient for probable cause. And OSHA re- and the 11th Circuit rejected that argument, saying even if there were 25, for example, 25 incidences on the Form 300 of eye injuries or eye infections over uh, Javanet three-year period, correct? Uh, then, then what you have to take that in the context of this is over a three-year period and, and almost 1,200 employees. Mm-hmm. And even with that data, the court said that's not probable cause. That's not sufficient for probable cause or a probable cause finding. Uh, so I think that's important that that the Form 300 was just not intended uh, to to get you to the point where you're looking at uh, the probable cause that a hazard exists, much less that a violation might exist. Uh, I'll note one more thing before we get to what employers should do, uh, that when we look at uh, the arguments that we've been making, you said that one of the best, most important takeaway items it relates to the lack of a link between data on the Form 300 and probable cause to get a warrant to conduct a wall-to-wall inspection. But as we started off, we noted that there were two arguments OSHA made, and the other one needs to be addressed real quickly, and that's the supposedly neutral administrative plan that uh, OSHA argues is found in the Regional Emphasis Program. When OSHA's staff was put on the stand and asked about that particular poultry Regional Emphasis Program, uh, I think quite an amazing uh, dialogue surfaced in the transcript, and the 11th Circuit took pains to take note of it, and so should we. The, the area director was asked, well, the regional emphasis program on its face says that if there's a complaint in the poultry industry that you can expand that to a wall-to-wall given the history of alleged uh, statistical instances of injuries and illnesses in the, or hazards even, in the uh, poultry industry. Uh, So will you conduct an inspection every time a complaint comes in? Will you convert that every time to an inspection or an inspection every time into a wall-to-wall inspection? And he said, no, even on the face of the plan, we we have the right not to based on available resources. If there's no resources to conduct that investigation, we may not. When asked, well, who gets to make that decision? He said, I I have to make that decision. And Marchak argued to the court that this isn't obviously, therefore, a neutral administrative scheme, and it's not neutrally applied anyways. Uh, it is something that the area director has discretion to apply or not apply. 
The area director argued, Rocha argued, no, we don't have the discretion to apply the regional emphasis programs uh, language about converting an inspection to a wall-to-wall inspection. We only have the discretion to not administer it if there's a lack of available resources. The 11th Circuit saw through that very quickly and said there's not much difference between selecting and non-selecting an employer for an inspection. And in fact, the testimony also revealed that there was only resources for one or maybe a few inspections per year. So they really mostly were non-selecting employers, and that means that they were selecting those one, two, or three employers a year that they would apply the regional emphasis program to or against. And that sort of undoes, entirely undoes, OSHA's allegation that the regional emphasis program on poultry was a neutral administrative plan, and it fully undoes their assertion that it was neutrally applied anyways. And I think this is a really important point because I believe that in many cases these regional and national emphasis programs are implemented primarily for the purpose of asserting that on any basis they can go in and conduct a more full or fuller inspection scope uh, than they otherwise would have. Uh, And so I think that this causes the agency to have to re-examine the whole utility of their national emphasis programs or regional emphasis programs to begin with, uh, if indeed they're, they're not neutrally, neutral administrative plans. So, Javane, on that basis, we should leave off, as we always do here at the OSHA 3030, with a practical discussion of what employers should do in light of this MARJAC decision. In other words, all right, well, we've got this legal mm-hmm. uh, technicality of warrants and when to mm-hmm. quash a warrant, et cetera, but what do we do about that? Well... I think the first thing to, to talk about is OSHA comes and knocks on your door mm-hmm. and says, hey, we're here to conduct an inspection. And it's important to evaluate when you are going to object to an inspection or what portions of an inspection or the scope of the inspection that you'll consent to and object to. Right. Just like Marjack did in this case, they only consented to uh, a limited inspection over the the site of uh, the location and the facility where the incident occurred and the tools involved. And so when OSHA comes to your facility and they they are going to perform an inspection and they explain the, the basis for that, so you can, as the employer, uh, when in your in your opening conversations with OSHA, uh, consent to which parts of the facility that you want th- that you're allowing them to come in, and if OSHA objects, then they have to go get a warrant. Marjack was in a fortunate position. I think that they were also very smart. They had their counsel, their their OSHA counsel, with them at the time that OSHA showed up, and so, or at least at the opening meeting. And so the council was able to parse out the, cons- the scope of consent that the employer was giving to OSHA to conduct an inspection and said that we'll consent to the accident-related inve- uh, investigation or inspection, but not a wall-to-wall. And I think that that's a, a pretty good position for Marjack to have found themselves in and a good model for other employers, if it's at all possible, uh, to have council there to be able to manage uh, this, this kind of inspection getting out of hand. Uh, certainly, OSHA has the prerogative if it believes that it's being stopped from conducting an investigation that that OSHA believes is within its rights. OSHA has the prerogative to go seek a warrant. And I think that the next takeaway item, uh, maybe not from this case, but just generically, would be, uh, of course, an employer should try to avoid the circumstance where OSHA believes it's necessary to get a warrant 
if it's possible for the employer and for OSHA to arrive at some kind of agreement as to what's reasonable. That's better for OSHA, that's better for the employees, it's better for the employer if an agreeable, workable solution can be arrived at right then and there. Uh, maybe sometimes that's not always possible, and I understand that. Uh, but to the extent that it is possible, I think that the employer should seek out what's possible and what's not for everyone to come to an accord, an agreeable solution, a workable solution for everybody, so that OSHA gets what it needs, the employer's rights are protected, the employer's rights that matter, both to its business and to to its ability to, to get on operationally, matter. Uh, the, the, those rights that matter can be, can be defended or upheld. Uh, and of course, so that the employee's safety is, is provided for by everyone interested, the employer and the agency. The other thing I think that, that the employer has to do right then and there and on the scene is to estimate the likelihood that OSHA will not only seek a warrant, but be able to successfully obtain a warrant, meaning evaluate the legal bases for OSHA's uh, application for a warrant and the legal sufficiency of that uh, argument, as well as the legal sufficiency of an employer's ability to obtain an uh, order to quash that warrant. Uh, but I, I think that if you get to that point, it's important for employers to know that they have to act immediately. Uh, that, that need to act with immediacy cannot be underestimated because if you can find yourself in the posture of moving a court to quash a warrant, then the sufficiency of the agency's evidence is the body of evidence that's at stake in front of the court. Whereas if you miss that turnstile, and OSHA gets its warrant, it conducts its inspection, you are then, uh, under your objection, I hope, you would have to note your objection, uh, or if, if they have a marshal enforce the warrant, uh, enforce entry under the warrant, then you've noted your objection. Then the, the test for the court is under a motion that the employer would have to file to suppress evidence that comes out of that warrant if indeed the warrant was improperly sought or obtained. And that is a very different legal standard than the sufficiency questions for um, the warrant in the first place or under a motion to quash that warrant in the first place. And so that's why immediacy is the really critical point. And I think that if there's no other takeaway items from this particular episode, then it might be that, uh, that you have to act quick to get to court and get that motion to quash uh, under scrutiny by the court before the warrant is truly administered. And I think what you have to do is work peaceably with your, your OSHA staff that you're, that you're uh, dealing with to say, look, we obviously have some arguments about this warrant. Rather than enforcing the warrant, why don't we both hold off until we can get a court to take a look at this under a motion to quash, and let's just respect the court's, let's both agree to respect the court's decision. Uh, I think that that would be a reasonable approach for both parties to, to work under. Uh, Finally, I think that when, when, as we talked about earlier, Javane, the first thing that, that OSHA is going to look at or want to ask for is OSHA records. Absolutely. So the uh, maintaining accurate OSHA logs is extremely important because this is certainly something that OSHA is going to ask for when they come to your facility. And as we saw, OSHA can try to, based on your OSHA 300 log, for example, they can try to determine that certain hazards exist based on what you've recorded. And uh, in, in, in some cases, if you have certain injuries or illnesses recorded and there's, there's a pattern of certain injuries or illnesses, or if they're all stemming from one 
particular part of the facility or one particular activity, then OSHA could use that um, to provide that that could be sufficient to demonstrate a reasonable suspicion of existing violations. And so OSHA 300 logs and any other um, OSHA logs that are required to be recorded, they can be used by OSHA to support um, alleged violations. And so it's important to make sure they're accurate, avoid over recording. So recording injuries that are not technically recordable <laughs> under the standard, um, which uh, the OSHA standard clearly lays out what what injuries and illnesses well, are supposed to be reportable. <laughs> far from clearly, it's a complex, sure, <laughs> complex rule. Good, that point. That that's a good point. Um, and then also make sure that um, it, it, I, again, it, OSHA will look at these logs in context. They'll look at um, what what is the rate of injury or illness compared to the industry rates, and so these things can and be I think used primarily, as you say, they'll be looking at patterns right. within the establishment. Well, those are the the takeaway items that I think Javani, you and I would have off the top of our heads right now, and I think that's a pretty good list to start with for any employer. Uh, I will say the next time, thank you all, by the way, for attending. And the next time you get an invitation for the next OSHA 3030, please, as I've urged you every month, forward that on to several other in-house counsel and safety and health professionals that you think could benefit from this program because new members of our OSHA 3030 community are the lifeblood of continuing this program into 2019, which I think we all want to see. So it's up to you to make sure that happens by forwarding our invitations along and making sure we add as many people as possible to our community who know about the program. Also, don't forget, you can catch this program and others as a podcast, and you can catch other news on Twitter at Rathmonish or any of our LinkedIn websites. David Sarvati and Larry Halperin are colleagues who had a lot to do with making this particular episode uh, a success and come together. Uh, also have LinkedIn pages, uh, as well as Javanate, you and I, John Gustafson, mm -hmm. and the Workplace Safety and Health page on LinkedIn for Cohen Heckman generally. Our next program will be always on a Wednesday. It'll be on Wednesday, 1 p.m., December 19th. Uh, that's the next OSHA 3030. As you know, we have many sister programs here at Keller and Heckman, the Tosca 3030, the Reach 3030, and the FIFRA 3030. And dates are posted on our website, December 12th for the Tosca 3030, and as well December 12th uh, for the FIFRA 3030. Wow, we're going to do two programs yes. at once. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope you have two sets of headphones and can hear one from each year. <laughs> I think that'll be ex an exciting day for us. Uh, and the uh, FIFRA 3030 will be coming up soon. I meant the Tosca and, 30, uh, and Reach 3030s. So stay tuned and uh, keep in touch with those dates on khlaw.com. Uh, thank you, Javane, for participating with me on this OSHA 3030. And thank you all for participating as well. And until next month, stay safe.